Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. Check out flyracing.com for their range of gear for riding on the roads. My name is Steve English and on this week's show we're going to look at who is the most to prove in 2021. And seeing as David Emmett's back in the show, he's got a lot to prove. He's got a lot to make up for having missed out in the last few shows. We've also got Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison on the show. But Dave, good to have you back on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, good to be back again, Steve English. And uh, for you, Dave, what's the what's the plan for the next while? Obviously, you've got uh, a fair bit of work to do now with testing just about in the corner. Uh, well, is it around the corner? That's the question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, we're all still up in the air about uh, when the season is going to start. And we're all expecting it to, to kick off in Qatar. We don't know whether it will kick off in Qatar. There's still a lot of question marks. Um, but yeah, looking forward to testing to seeing who's been doing what. Obviously, no new engines this year because of the uh, because of the regulations. Only Aprilia will be allowed to bring a new engine. All the rest are frozen from last year. Uh, I'm actually digging into um, uh, something about engines, which I won't go into right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, interesting to see what people are going to bring, whether they can actually find some improvement on last year with very, very limited testing. More important than that, uh, as you missed like last week's podcast, will Valentino Rossi ever win another race? In uh, he might. Yes, he might. He might. Um, he won't win another championship because the, the the level has moved on and there's too many other races who are too hungry and he's not in the right position. Um, I don't think the Yamaha is strong enough. But the, I mean, like there are certainly circumstances i don't think he's going to win like three or four races in a season but there's a chance that he can still win a win a race the thing about MotoGP now right now in in 2021 is it's so open um so many things can happen uh that there's a lot of riders who can win you know there's i don't know 12 14 riders who could potentially win a race so why couldn't valentino rossi win one it's really good to have Dave back when he's asked a question that only has a yes or no answer and he gives a really definitive, he might be able to win again. Adam, <laughs> Dave was Dave was mentioning there that uh, obviously the MotoGP teams are limited to the upgrades they're able to make. We've been able to make an upgrade having you on the show once again this week. And uh, for you, what's the, what's the plan now for the next while? You were saying last week that you're off to the Canaries soon enough. Yeah, Canary Islands uh, tomorrow morning, actually. So uh, I'm hoping this is not going to be another hour plus show. Uh, no, I've got to uh, head out to the press launch of the um, the new KTM 1290 Super Adventure S. So uh, life, like I mentioned life last is time, hell. I think yeah, the BMW GS Killer or the the Multistrada Challenger, the 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 Triumph Tiger Tamer. Um, let's see if any of those uh, labels come come off. God, I tell you what, it's a good thing, Neil, that uh, Adam's got a month to produce on track off-road whenever he's coming up with those kind of puns. But uh, for you, you managed to somehow stifle under your breath there, Neil, your displeasure that Adam's been able to leave Catalonia tomorrow while uh, you're still stuck <laughs> in your same room. I know, exactly. We're not allowed to uh, even leave the city limits uh, in Barcelona at the moment. So uh, you can imagine my envy levels at uh, Adam jetting off tomorrow morning. You can also imagine my anger levels the second week in a row, Steve, that I'm supposed to follow Adam when you've asked us, like, so what are you up to in the next couple of days? And, uh, you know, Adam's jetting <laughs> off and I've got nothing really to say. Yeah, I'll be sitting, you know, doing a bit of research, making some notes, uh, you know, not very exciting. We know what that means. <laughs> we know what that means. <laughs> research and notes. <laughs> I'm glad you used two words for it this time. Yeah, well, in fairness, but, uh, we, we do know that the laptop will be open for Neil, but uh, we did see uh, <laughs> quite a lot of news today, actually, guys. We saw that uh, 
Bruno won't be on the MotoGP calendar next year. We've seen also Burry Ram is going to be off the off the calendar as well with the tie uh, tie round just confirming that they're not going to host it for next season. It's big news, but I suppose the good news is that at least the Circuit de Catalunya changed their name. So we're, we don't go to Barcelona, we go to Montmeló. So that race should be okay. And uh, we haven't gone to somewhere like Buenos Aires or Budapest in a long time. So hopefully these are only the, the races that are going to be affected this year, Neil. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's not very not very surprising with the situation being the way it is in the world. Um, yeah, the longer we go through this year, um, the more likely it seems that at least part of our season is going to be uh, very similar to, to last year. Um, although today there was also announced that um, basically the Model 2 and Model 3 testing has been, has been the official testing has been moved from uh, Jerez to Qatar. Um, in, uh, I think, middle of March. Um, so I think that's a sign that um, the people at Dorna HQ are, are still pretty hopeful, pretty optimistic with regards to the first round or the first two rounds happening. Uh, obviously, both of them are supposed to take place in Qatar um, at the end of March and then the start of April. So um, the fact that they've just announced that, uh, yeah, they're going to be moving the, the official test from Jerez to Qatar maybe is a sign that uh, we will be going there after all for round one and two. Yeah, and Dave, um, just for Qatar especially, obviously they've got some big football tournaments coming up relatively soon. They've also got the WTA and the ATP Tour Tennis tournaments are going to be in Doha at the start of March. So as long as those kind of events are going ahead, it still paints a picture that international sport can go ahead and something like MotoGP should still be potentially unaffected. Yeah, I mean, the the question is, uh, well, it's a numbers game to an extent because I mean uh, it's the what is it the World Club Football Cup uh, I think um, which is kicks off this week I understand um, but uh, what's that six or eight clubs or something it's not a huge number of people um, uh, the same with the with the tennis tournament I have no idea how many people are involved but I should expect it's sort of in the low hundreds whereas MotoGP it's thirteen hundred people that they need to to fly around the world and that's a big, it's a big number of people. Um, the thing about Qatar, of course, is that the uh, owner of the Lozelle circuit is extremely well connected with the Qatari royal family. And the good thing about living in um, uh, in a dictatorship is you can do what you like. Um, so if they have the political clout to do it, then then it can happen. I think it might be a bit of a slog for the people who actually go because it's possible that people will be heading over sort of on the fourth to get ready for the test on the 5th and the 6th and not leading again until after the second race on, what is it, the 4th or 5th of um, uh, of April. So uh, I think there are going to be some people who are going to be in Qatar for a very, very long time. And I think that could get um, uh, less than, well, it's less than a, than a fulfilling life, shall we say, uh, spending so much time cooped up in a hotel in Doha. Neil, how excited are you for that? <laughs> don't know if my groan was audible from uh, where you guys are sat, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, sure. If it means that we get to go and see some racing, then uh, I'm all for it. But yeah, let's uh, let's see what happens. Are we not um, a little surprised that the Thai GP is called off? I mean, it was the 10th of October. I mean, that's that's still quite some time away. I mean, considering how I know various vaccination programs in Europe, especially, are either disastrous or progressing quite nicely. Uh, you'd think a race in October would still be, I mean, there's obviously various circumstances behind the scenes where the ties have had to make a, an early judgment call, but it does seem, you know, quite premature. 
I, I think it's less about MotoGP and more about sort of regional politics. A lot of these sort of things are much more about um, uh, the, uh, you know, allowing numbers of, numbers of people in from all sorts of places and not so much from Europe. Um, and it's easier to call it off now and then hold it again in the future rather than uh, sort of say that it's going to happen and then go back. And I think also that Thailand is one of the races which is definitely dependent on actually fans attending. And for me, I think that's going to be one of the big, big questions this year is, uh, you know, fans. Where, which circuits can, hold, uh, can host a race with only limited number of fans or with no fans at all? Dave, just in relation to Thailand as well, Thailand hasn't been confirmed as being off the calendar yet by Dorna. It's been confirmed by the Thai government that they won't sanction the race. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's yeah. The, as I understand it, reading the Bangkok Poster story, um, uh, basically the the uh, it was called off. It was called off by the government, um, basically saying, uh, you know, we, we're going to keep on, uh, we're going to keep on doing it. Uh, it's just that we're not going to, we're not going to do it this year. Uh, but they will be racing there from uh, through 2026. So they are confirming that they that they want to keep hosting the race because it's extremely possible, uh, uh, po- uh, po- popular. Uh, just they don't want to do it for this year yeah it is a a good race to get to as well and good event so hopefully back in the calendar from next year so there were the two big news stories that we had just as we were getting ready to record this week's show but uh, like i said the big topic for this week's show is who's got the most to prove and dave you're just back on the show so for for you when you look at MotoGP, what team what person what rider has the most to prove in 2021 well, I mean, I think I, to me, um, the per or the people who have the most to prove are actually the circuits. I mean, we were talking about it just now, uh, referring back to it. It's um, last year, Dorna did a fantastic job of actually putting on racing um, at a uh, at a bunch of circuits. The fact that we actually had fourteen races is still really impressive, um, but it only happens because there were people and organizations with very deep pockets which were prepared to bankroll it uh, there's a lot of tracks where um it cannot it simply couldn't happen um i know for example talking to uh, assen that they depend very very heavily on the income generated by the dutch tt uh, and actually staging a race without fans would be extremely difficult for them um and again Dorna need the income from the uh, hosting fees for the races um, for uh, to actually survive. So it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, yeah, I mean, how the tracks can adapt, how the tracks can uh, survive, which tracks will be able to put on races, if they will find ways of, um, uh, 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 of you know, generating more revenue. Uh, we've seen, I mean, it's been really interesting seeing, for example, comedians and uh, music bands uh, switching to doing uh, gigs on sort of platforms like Twitch. Uh, and streaming gigs, doing live gigs or live gigs with a very small number of um, uh, of actual crowds and then charging for access sort of thing. Uh, it, obviously, that's much more complicated for Dorna because they've got lots and lots of broadcasting uh, contracts, but it makes you wonder whether tracks uh, and circuits can find a way to, to, to do that. So I think for me, I think this year 
it's going to be crucial to see whether a number of tracks can actually survive or not. And the way that they adapt, the way that the circuit, that the, 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 the season develops, um, is going to be uh, just crucial to the long-term future. And if we do, I mean, there are, uh, I think there is a genuine risk that some tracks could go bankrupt this year. And if that happens, then we've got a very, very different calendar for 2022 and a very, very different sort of atmosphere and environment for the future. And I just when you listen to what David's talking about there in terms of for the circuits to be able to try and sustain something, obviously in all series, that's something that is a big factor for them. When you look at like in the motocross side of things, we've seen a lot of big MX tracks have had to have events where they weren't able to have fans last year. You're looking at Supercross at the moment where very limited fan numbers allowed into the stadiums. Like this is a real challenge for organizers and for circuits to be able to deal with yeah and there's actually some rumors flying around at the moment steve the msgp was due to start early april in oman uh the first ever grand prix there and it's possibly going to be pushed back to may even june um so i think you know the in front motor racing you know the promoters the dawner of motocross are really uh kind of hedging their bets that fans will be allowed back into circuits because you know, those organizers sometimes run by federations, sometimes very locally or provincially uh, owned or supported really need that income. But sort of touch, touching a little bit on what Dave said a minute ago, I mean, it, be under no illusion of how much the sports I think are going to move more into a, a very much a TV driven realm. I mean, from what I understand from Dorna as well, I mean, uh, one of the other news to emerge this week was the three year renewal of the BT Sports uh, TV contract. Uh, for the UK, which is, you know, another big broadcaster for them locked in for a few more years. What I understand as well, in Spain, DAZN are doing a deal with Movistar. So, you know, in theory, there should be wider distribution of MotoGP on TV for the Spanish public. Um, the zone could possibly be linking up with um, Sky Italia. So I think Dawn are very busy with their TV deals. Um, and, you know, they, they haven't really had any uh, major issues in terms of backing on that front. So as long as that big pot of gold, like they've said, there's a you know, substantial income to be made from event sponsorship as well as uh, hosting fees, but also the uh, the broadcast rights that they sell, you know, based very much on sort of the Formula One model, uh, is, is key and it's still very much alive. Yeah, and the model for that, obviously F1, the model that they created for the TV deals, basically meant TV was king. And uh, it meant that over the course of the last 20 years, circuits weren't even able to get trackside marketing boards. They weren't even able to have their own ad boards. That's why you see the same sponsors at race after race after race. And that's why, Neil, that's why uh, for a circuit, it's so important to be able to sell tickets and be able to get fans through the door. And that's one of the big challenges that actually we're seeing in the UK as well, because obviously with British Superbikes, MSV owns an awful lot of racetracks, and that means that they can at least take in some of that cost. But there's no other real real series that are able to do something like that and basically just try and make sure it goes ahead. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, um, prior to uh, this whole um, COVID pandemic i mean you would say that there were a couple of circuits that we visit which were maybe in a bit of a precarious state as it was never mind how it is now when they've had to deal with basically a full year with with barely any event events or, or no fans coming in uh, dave i remember you saying at one point last year that you spoke to people at aston and they said that another year without fans would, would basically make them bankrupt because so much of their income is generated just through the GP weekend alone, yeah, um, yeah, it does it does make you wonder? I think um, you know Dave brings up some some interesting points, um, just how far 
can this go? Um, you know, there's there's obviously tracks that have don't have to worry about that because they're state owned or um, owned by you know private companies, which uh, sort of have endless endless pits of money. But um, places like you know historic places as well that we go to, like Aston, um, yeah, even Silverstone. I mean, you know, think of all the work that they've had to do over the last couple of years with their track surface. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's quite worrying that. Um, when we get to 2022, um, it could be there could be a, a much or a much smaller pool of tracks to, to choose from, basically. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting that you make the point, Steve, about the basically like the, the like the F1 model, if you like, which is also the same model which MotoGP uses. Um, I mean, you can divide Dorna's income very roughly into three pots, which are all more or less equal, or the way it used to be, which was one third um, hosting fees, one third um, uh, advertising. Uh, and one third broadcasting rights. Um, but they used to negotiate the deals with title sponsors for races, for example. So that was money which, uh, the tracks never saw. They would be negotiating the, um, uh, the, all the signage, um, uh, the, the, all the advertising signage around tracks. Again, that's track, that's money which the, which the tracks uh, didn't see. Um, and there's going to have to be, if there is less, income from you know punters basically bums on physical seats then they're going to have there's going to have to be a way they're gonna to have to find a way of, of distributing that income because it does look like i mean people are if you're stuck at home people are sort of crying out for entertainment they're look they're, they're, they're crying out because you know it, it's it felt like certainly to me the that the MotoGP season was incredibly popular people were really really sort of you know keen on, on the, the, they loved it was a great it was a great year it was a great season it was a great championship there was great racing uh, people were very excited about it uh, there was a lot to talk about um uh, and the trick is turning that excitement into income uh, into revenue outside of the traditional patents, the patents which they've been doing for decades and decades, and and finding new ways of of, of generating money and sharing it around. Dave, just to take on something that you mentioned there, you said that uh, you know the season was really popular. People wanted to see more and more as the season was going on. I want to ask you all a question then. Neil and Adam, you can answer this about watching, say, the Premier League or anything like that. Dave, you can look at it for something like the NFL. Um. When you look at the amount of football that was on the telly this year, did you actually want to sit down and watch seven days of Premiership football after like the first couple of weeks of football coming back for David, uh, for Neil and for Adam? And then David, whenever you look at the extra windows that have been put on in NFL games, do you want to watch a game on a Wednesday night? N no, but um, I think the, the, the thing is, when it's really compressed, uh, a lot of the problem was it was so compressed. Um, uh, everything was sort of like compressed together, and so there was like there was barely any breathing room. Um, I mean, I can't speak about football. I didn't even watch much NFL this year. Um, uh, again, cycling. Normally, I'd be watching all the cycling classics, but uh, they were all sort of shifted around. They were on strange dates. Well, actually, Dave, Dave with cycling, with cycling, you had three grand tours basically week after week. Yeah, for the first yeah. time ever, yeah. like it was a case that was there was too much of the same sport on on the t on TV yes. for me, and I'm saying this as someone that watches everything and still <laughs> did end up watching everything last year. But it just seemed to me that unless you were an absolute fanatic, 
it was almost too much at different times. Adam, I, I don't know what you thought about it. It's a different scenario, I feel now, where before you had to search for the sport or, you know, you programmed yourself to think, right, well, the uh, Assens on this weekend or, uh, you know, Mugello, I definitely can't miss that as on in two weeks. If you, you know, relate it to something like football where there's a game on every night, it's almost like a comfort thing. Like you can switch on the TV and you know there's a football match there. Uh, and of course, it's about providing a product. So the more you provide, the more people get accustomed to it, the more they're, you know, you're substituting revenue that you're losing in other places. So, you know, I think it's uh, if you're looking for a broadcast or a digital medium for transmitting the sport and and, and reaching a, your usual audience in a different way, then it that's the way it's moving. Yeah. And like if you look at Formula One, um, the way it's heading, I mean, Formula One's on course to have basically a race a week. Um, between March and November with, you know, obviously a, a break in the summer um, thrown in between. But, uh, you know, the, the schedules that they have are just insane. And, and let's be honest, MotoGP was heading that way prior to um, prior to the COVID thing. You know, we were, it was widely acknowledged that we were going to have maybe 22 races in a year um, held over nine months. I mean, that's a pretty solid... Um, Okay, it's maybe not every single weekend, but there's going to be a lot of back-to-backs in there. Um, basically, a lot of a lot of that. And, um, you know, we've probably talked on the show before about how much, um, yeah, how you can oversaturate something and maybe that loses a bit of meaning, a bit of value. Um, but, um, but yeah, with regards to, with regards to football, Steve, I would, I would definitely agree with that. You, there is sometimes too much of a good thing. And um, certainly with MotoGPs, I mean, I think having it, so often and every week it, it can basically take away a little bit from the I don't know the you know how how, how big it is and, and how special it is you know if you're seeing it every weekend it maybe just isn't quite as special relating to football I mean uh, you know in, for following my team and the championship traditionally that would traditionally normally there's a, a game on a Saturday and a midweek game you know you're getting two games per week and when there's an international break and there's no game for two weeks, I really feel, you know, when's the next game coming around? You know, I really kind of look forward to it. And you're not being able to travel or be in the stadium or see a match live. You you kind of depend on it a bit more. I, mean, I find there's an urgency now to watch my team that I didn't really have before because I knew there would be a, a slew of games coming up. Um, but now it's like it seems to be... I mean, it's also wrapped in the whole isolation thing and the way society is at the moment. I think you really reach for your your touchstones in terms of the things you like or the things that pep you up or, you know, it's, I think it's more complicated than thinking, well, is there too much of it on? But, yeah. uh, you know, there is a case for it being devalued. Adam, just far too proud to be able to actually say that he's a QPR fan there. But uh, I I'm think wearing that... the T-shirt, Steve. I'm wearing the T-shirt. <laughs> I, I why do... do I have to say it when I, I'm on the camera? You, you need more lights on you then. I, I couldn't make it out. I couldn't make it out. Um, I think, that, like, Neil, you made a good point there. Formula One is going to have 23 races next year. And I think 21 of those races are taking place over the course of seven months. So it shows that once they're into the European season, it's literally three races a month, which for me seems like an incredible amount. And like I, I grew up watching F1. I used to skip school on Friday to be able to watch Friday to practice. So I was the person that would certainly be keen for more and more races. But it just seems that it's right on that limit now. And, and everything's so condensed. You can understand why calendars are made the way that they are, but it's it's very difficult to see how that's kind of sustainable. Okay, we're going to take a break now on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we'll have Neil and Adam's thoughts on who's got the most to prove in 2021. 
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Neil, who for you has got the most to prove in 2021? Uh, well, David went for uh, the rather worldly option. Uh, I'm going to go more specific in, in MotoGP and uh, I'm going to say Jack Miller, I think, has maybe the most to prove. Um, and I'm not saying that because I don't think Jack doesn't deserve his seat uh, or because I don't rate Jack Miller at all. But I just think that the job that he has on his hands this year is is a pretty big one. Um, when you consider that he's going in to replace effectively uh, Andrea De Vizioso, um, the man that brought Ducati from the doldrums in 2013 right the way to the cusp of winning the championship in 2017. He, guy that won 14 races and that has um, a fantastic ability to develop a bike, has a, a seriously high intelligence and has basically been in the Mark Marquez era, the guy that's given Mark Marquez the most amount of trouble. So Miller has to come in, pretty much be fast straight away. Uh, I can't really see anyone else at Ducati fighting for a championship this year. So Miller has to, I think, be the guy that's building the season together to do that. Um, and then you have to factor in the, f the fact that, um, I don't know, like, if you look at history, does Gigi Delinia rate Jack Miller super highly when you consider that Gigi Delinia was contemplating, was pretty happy to get rid of Miller back in 2018 so that Jorge Lorenzo could come back into the Ducati fold? Um, I mean, these are things that I'm sure Jack maybe isn't thinking about because he's just focused on um, going out there and doing his own thing. Um, but those are those are some pretty big things that he has to deal with, I think, this year. Um, I think he, he's possibly capable of it. If you look at 2020, there were a couple of very unfortunate circumstances for Jack. Um, you think of the mechanical failure that he had at Le Mans when he was arguably going to win the race. Um, there was another mechanical failure at one point in the year when things were pretty well. He got taken out of uh, Aragon. Um, and he still ended up with a, a fairly decent um, showing in the championship. Um, his form towards the end of the year was really strong. So I think he can do well, but it's a, it's a big ask. And, uh, well, we've, we've spoken about it many times on the show before. Um, Ducati will let you know if you're underperforming. They will not <laughs> keep that quiet. And uh, how he deals with the, basically being the number one figure in that factory now is going to be quite fascinating to watch, I think. Yeah, I mean, the, it, the in the Ducati team, the, in the Ducati factory team, there are two roles. There is uh, Jack Miller and there's Pekka Banyaya. And the expectations of Pekka Banyaya are that he comes in and uh, has a really good season. The expectations, uh, expectations of Jack Miller are that he comes in and is a, uh, a, a candidate to win the championship. Um, really, I mean, I agree. That's it's a really good shout, Neil, because not because 
course, um, Jack Miller is not a great rider. He is a great rider. He's an incredibly talented rider, but um, they're expecting him to be champion uh, uh, this coming year or, you know, get close to being champion. And that's uh, that's asking a lot. Adam, is there anyone that you can think of that's a great rider and a world champion? I can't think of anyone that uh, says that quite a lot. <laughs> I mean... I don't know, Steve, coming coming back to the question you're asking about, you know, people who have got something to prove in MotoGP. I mean, Neil stole my answer, then Dave, you know, stole the second part of my answer. So I'm left a little bit uh, without uh, substance. But um, I'm tempted to say a little bit on one hand, Suzuki, uh, leaderless. Uh, can they back it up and not go another 20 years between championships? I'd be curious to see how they, they start off and how they get on. Um, I also want to see how KTM make progress. but. To be honest, when you put them up against Ducati, who are almost now 20 years in MotoGP, uh, you know, KTM will be entering their fifth season. I still feel the question marks, as Dave and Neil said, remain over, you know, the Italians. Uh, you know, a complete rider swap out for their factory team. Uh, Miller, like, you know, Neil pointed out, you know, I don't need to add anything more to, to what he said. Uh, and Pekka Bagnaia, I think, holds um, that impetus as the slightly younger, slightly more wild, slightly perhaps safer bet towards the future. Uh, maybe they're kind of Davizioso, but with extra kind of spunk, for want of a better word, um, you know, f as their bet for the for the factory team. So uh, I I've got no idea what my firm answer was to that question, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Neil a small question there because Adam mentioned, will it be 20 years between titles? And Neil, as a Liverpool fan, you nodded your head thinking, that's actually not that long between titles. <laughs> yeah, anything less than 30 is, uh, is a pretty good, pretty acceptable number, I would say. For for you, Adam, though, if you look at, uh, like, with the most to prove, obviously you mentioned that, you know, you wanted to look at Miller and Pekka Bagnaia, just Ducati as a whole. Like, for Ducati, with all the investment they've made, with all the trust that they've placed in Gigi, does Gigi have the most to prove in the whole paddock? Because he's been given pretty much everything that he wants and he hasn't been able to deliver the only thing that Ducati want. I mean, in terms of innovation and ideas, uh, impact, uh, everything apart from actually putting a championship FIM medal on the mantelpiece, uh, race wins, um, you know, I think he, he's he's delivered in spades. But, you know, he, he clearly... There was some divide between him and Davizioso. Uh, is he a slightly spiky or odd guy to work with? I mean, that would be interesting again to see how a different kind of Italian in Bagnaia, you know, forges a partnership with him. Uh, we know in the past his track record with people like Lorenzo, uh, Eugene Laverty. You know, I don't think you could say he's somebody that blends well with only one nationality, for example. Um, you know, his English is, is good. It's not fantastic. But, you know, I think people now, especially next season, and the next two to three, we'll be thinking rather, okay, what fancy, interesting, curious thing have the Desmos Adichis got on this time? Uh, more towards, hey, listen, can somebody actually string some wins and results together, make the most of these Michelins and, and make the Ducati a little bit more of a versatile motorcycle and, and deliver the, 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 the payload? And Dave, just from what Adam was talking there as well about, you know, working with Adavi and how that relationship deteriorated. Like we saw the same thing on the technical side as well, because obviously it's someone like Ernesto Marinelli that had been at Ducati for, you know, 20, 25 years, lots of success, won world championships. And then, you know, he fell out with Gigi and 
the Superbike programme ended up taking a big hit as a result of that. Gigi's not easy to get on with unless you're all rowing in the same direction. And that's for technical side, for riders, for everything. The, the psychology of uh, Grand Prix racing, of, of, of any sport at this level, is extremely competitive and extremely intolerant of anything which is perceived as, be, as, as, as failure. I mean, someone once told me that, you know, uh, Ducati always talks about being, you know, a family, one big family. Um, but I was told that... Um, yeah, it's a family as long as you're winning. Um, uh, if you're not winning, then it's not a family at all. You know, it's we win, you lose. So it's uh, it, it, it's very different. It's it's a there's also a blame culture there, which I think is not specifically unique to Ducati, but uh, D- uh, Ducati is a very very spiky atmosphere. It's a very very spiky cu- uh, culture, I think. So yeah, there's a there's a, a lot of room uh, to fail, and uh, perhaps there's a little bit too much blaming going on, and not enough, um, uh, you know, giving people room and taking uh, people taking their own responsibility. You're also having you're talking about a company that's had two buyouts and various management reshuffles in, in you know in the in the space of what less than two decades. So I think you know there is a mashup of of culture there. Uh, you know, I mean we're speculating. Of course, we we don't really know what it's like to wear a red shirt. Uh, so you know, but I think you, you know the points are valid and the ev- ev- the evidence and the relationship with the, with the staffs, especially the riders, are there to show. Yeah, and I'd just like to add that. Um, uh, it might have sounded like I was being in some way critical of, of Miller there. I mean, if if Miller's bike hadn't blown up at Le Mans and he'd won the race there, he would have finished second in the championship. And that was when, through most of the year, I, w- I wasn't necessarily thinking Miller was one of the strongest names. So even though I still think there's a lot more left in his tank and he still has a quite a big margin to, to grow as a rider, um, I think, you know, the numbers last year were actually quite good um, in spite of some pretty tough times for Ducati. Uh, yeah, the Mizano, the Mizano visor as well now. I mean, he yeah, has some Mi- pretty freaky things. Yeah, exactly. The Mizano visor, he had the crash at uh, the second race at Jerez, um, which was his fault, admittedly. But, um, you know, and then obviously Brad Binder took him out at, at Aragon. But, um, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, um, Miller, as I'm sure Miller is, he's probably thinking, you know what, I'm pretty, pretty well placed. Uh, some really rotten luck last year. And had it not been for that, I would have been top three in the championship. So uh, you could look at it from that point of view as well, that, you know, he's coming in here with some good momentum after a good end of year. Um, but I still think the whole politics of the factory team within Ducati is is something that you, you have to be prepared for. Um, and uh, I mean, just look at, at Davizioso last year. I mean, it, it was it was weighing him down, you know. And albeit that's him in the eighth year of being a factory rider there, but uh, yeah, I would say that uh, that that's certainly something that Jack will have to have to get used to and and, and get accustomed to. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that whenever you ask a question like this, it's not necessarily that you're being critical of the people that you give the answer of. Someone like Jack, like you said, Neil, last season he made a big step forward, a lot more consistent. He was obviously, like you discussed there as well, quite unlucky at different times. But once you're in the factory seat and you've replaced Davizioso, who's been the title contender for the last four or five years for Ducati, there is the pressure that goes with that. And the pressure is you have to deliver and you have to be able to win races. Jack, of course, has won a MotoGP race, but he now needs to win in the dry, David. He needs to be able to make that next step forward week in, week out to be a regular front runner and challenge for a championship. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I have a question. Who's under more pressure, Jack Miller or Fabio Quartararo? 
Jack's got more pressure because Yamaha have clearly shown that they don't care if riders underperform. They're going to give them contracts very early. So for <laughs> Fabio, he's going to get re-signed. He's going to win races. He's going to do a good job. So he's going to be exactly like Vinales and get himself re-signed and be able to keep his ride. Fabio is going to go one of two ways. It's going to be like it was two years or years ago, or it's going to be like it was last year. Last year, there was still more than enough signs to say that you've got a top-class rider. Yamaha do have a top-class rider. So they are going to do everything they can to keep hold of him. But they also need to be able to get more out of him than you know they did with Vinales the last few years. And I think that's where the person with the pressure at Yamaha isn't Vinales, isn't Quattararo, isn't even you know Marigali. It's always going to be Lynn Jarvis because he needs to show that he can win championships again. It's five, six years since Yamaha were challenging for the championship or winning the championship with Lorenzo. So they really need to be able to get that consistency all the way through the season because like we've talked about it on the pod all the way through the winter. Yamaha had a fast enough bike last year to win the championship, to win races, and they weren't able to get it done all the way through. And when that happens year after year, I find it hard to blame the riders and, and much easier to blame the infrastructure that's in place. Yeah, but surely Vinales now, Steve, has has more pressure. I mean, he's now the elder of the team. Uh, Quattararo is still a, a rookie com- by comparison. And, and Vinales has always had that shadow of the vast yellow 46 next to him, which isn't there anymore. I mean, he is now de facto leader of, of the Yamaha factory team. So for me, he's got to deliver. He has to deliver something this year. I mean, whether Yamaha can sort out their chassis and, and try and make the bike a bit more consistent in, in all conditions is the big question. But, you know, I mean... Maverick, I think it really has to show something. Yeah, Lynn Jarvis is busy building his retirement um, uh, chateau in uh, in Italy, <laughs> so uh, uh, I don't think there's much pressure on him. You know, he's 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 older than me, and I'm old, so um, uh, he's closer to his retirement than um, the than the start of his uh, his career. So yeah, I'm I'm not sure how much pressure he is in. I mean, like I know if you like, personally, I know how much pressure he puts on himself. Obviously, he wants to win. Um, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he's got a whole he's got a whole uh, shelf full of championships. So um, yeah, he's already done it. No, I I think for me though, it's it's all well and good that Jarvis is at the end of his career and he's won championships and he's done all those things, but he's done them in the past. And if he's still got that mantle of being Yamaha's MD and running the show. He needs to deliver. And regardless of whether or not he gets pushed out to end his career a little bit earlier than he wants, for me, the buck stops with him because Yamaha have made bad decisions year after year recently. You know, and I think that when you look at who makes the decisions, ultimately that blame has to be a portion of someone. You know, at, you were asking about Vinales for Maverick, you know, if he goes out and he does a great job, wins a championship. It's perfect. If he doesn't, you know, it's the same as what it's been for the last few years. So yeah, but it's been it's been five years now, Steve. I mean, Yamaha have to have to yeah, show but, something. But does Vinales have any more pressure on himself now? Because we've had the same arguments about Vinales for the last three years. You know, like Quattararo can probably look at it and say, "No, no, I can put the pressure on Vinales." But on the basis of what we've seen from Vinales since he moved to Yamaha, do you think he's going to win a championship? Do you think he's going to hook up? 18, 19 races in a season. I don't think there's too many people that will think he can do that. So realistically, yeah, you know, Yamaha might look in another direction at the end of this contract for Vinales. But, you know, 
I don't think that there's any more pressure on him now than there was two years ago. Yeah, I think if you take some of Maverick's, uh, sorry, if you take some of Fabio's drama and some of, um, you know, Franco Morbidelli's laid back coolness and, you know, find something in the middle there, then uh, you're aiming for, like, you know, maybe the best rider to deal with the Yamaha's many ups and downs. But uh, I don't know. What do you think, Neil? Uh, yeah, I mean, there is a, a very strange possibility that uh, Yamaha's best bet could be a guy that's on a, a two-year-old motorcycle this year in Franco Morbidelli, um, because as it stands, he seems to be the most uh, the most rounded character uh, to deal with uh, the challenges that come regularly in uh, in the championship. Um, yeah, I, I agree that um, we've been asking this question about Vinales for the last three or four years. Um, there is a lot to prove um, for Fabio as well. Um, but I would just say that Fabio, you know, he's still 21. Um, he's got a two-year contract. Um, if he can show solid progress this year and win races regularly um, and even put his name in the championship hunt, I still think that'll be a, a decent haul for him. Um, whereas if we're talking about someone like Miller, who's maybe a bit more advanced in his career, someone like Vinales, the same. Um, yeah, the, the kind of pressure is on for them to deliver now, especially if, as it looks, uh, will happen. Um, Mark Marquez won't be at 100% uh, for a decent part of this season. Uh, but enough of me yapping on about MotoGP, Steve. Um, who would you say has the most to prove, perhaps in the in the Superbike Championship in 2021? Hey, well, for me in the Superbike Championship, it, it comes back to Ducati because they've made big calls in recent years they've gotten rid obviously Chaz Davis for next year they've put all their eggs into the Scott Redding basket they've got the best bike on the grid no expenses being spared with the V4R they've had the bike that could win races over the course of the last few years obviously with Bautista they really should have won the championship and didn't so I think now they really need to be able to capitalize on that and if they don't win it they'll be second guessed for making the wrong call like let's say Chaz Davis goes out and wins a lot of races on the Go 11 Ducati, takes points off Scott Redding. There'll be questions asked, why wasn't he on the factory bike? And I think for Ducati to be a success next year, they really just need one rider to be able to win races and challenge for the championship. They don't need to be taking points off each other. Who's under more pressure, Ducati or Scott Redding, do you think? It's a little bit like what I was saying about Vinales. Like for me, Vinales isn't under any more pressure than he was for the last few years. Scott has had his career ended basically on a couple of occasions and is still racing at the World Championship. He had his pressure to try and find a seat and then to win the BSB Championship, come to Superbikes and win races. Scott, in effect, is racing with house money now. And I think he's relaxed enough about what he's doing to be able to focus on what he has to do. He's had really bad years where he's been at the back of MotoGP fields. He's had no chance of doing anything. That's whenever it's hard for a rider. Being on a good bike, being able to win races, that's a lot easier to deal with. So for me, Scott's under a lot of pressure to win. But for him, it's good pressure. Whereas for Ducati, I think it's bad pressure. They need to be able to win that championship. And I think that, you know, maybe whenever I was talking about Yamaha and MotoGP, I was a little bit um, convoluted about what I was saying. But I think that for riders, it's whether or not they can focus on enough positives rather than us on the outside looking at the things that we would imply pressure on them. And I think Scott's in that really good position now where the pressure he's feeling is the pressure he wants to feel. I think, uh, you know, that Jonathan Ray needs to step up and do something. Uh, you know, him and Kawasaki, I mean, it's been six years now. 
come on guys, you know, pull your finger out. Uh, we need to see a bit of a higher level of performance there. I know there was races where they weren't even on the podium last year. It was disastrous. <laughs> I think that what's going to be interesting, though, is to see actually what happens with Kawasaki, though, because in all seriousness, the Kawa wasn't the best bike on the grid last year. And at some races, it was nowhere near that. The Yamaha was better. The Ducati was better. If you think back to like Montmelo and Estoril in particular, Ducati and, and Yamaha were a much better package at those tracks. And that shows that the Kawa has kind of been left behind a little bit. And that's where, you know, they need to make a big step forward. And they've obviously got a new bike, but now it's a question of whether or not it's actually a big upgrade or if it's just a new fairing. But does it matter, though? I mean, they've got Jonathan Ray. Well, you know, Johnny covers up for a lot of things. You know, he's your margin of error. But when the margin of error is a little bit more than he can make up for, it then becomes difficult. The one thing for Johnny is that over the course of, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 rounds, three races at each track, it's an awful lot of races through the season where other people make mistakes. And we've seen over the course of the last six years, Johnny makes one, two mistakes a year, nothing, nothing else really. And the rest of the time, he's always able to maximize what he has. So he's the margin of error but you still need to be in the ballpark. It's actually a very interesting case, Jonathan Ray. I mean, there's no other kind of athlete in any other motorsport, you know, who's, who's <coughs> Mark Marquez. taken apart from Mark Marquez. Can I finish, please, sir? <laughs> um, you know, who's racked up six championships. You know, the, the mentality and the psychology that goes into that, you know, when to attack, when to defend, when to, you know, self-analyze, when to be critical, when to, you know, fix your confidence. I mean, there's so much going into that. If he does seven in a row, it'll be pretty mind-blowing. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd like, with Johnny, you saw whenever he was up against <laughs> Bautista, that he could still find positives in all the negatives. And he went to, you know, round five, and he'd been beaten 11 times in a row, and no real chance, you know, and, and he went to Imola and he said, you know what, if I'm beaten at Imola, I then have no chance of winning the championship. This is a track where, you know, it takes time to learn it. It's a tough circuit. We know it. Kevin knows it. We've got the same bike. We have to beat him this weekend. And the bet Bautista that weekend. And then from that point on, never really look back. And then if you think back to, you know, the last last year as well, it was a bit like that as well. He knew he had to maximize things when we went to Aragon and you're up double header in Aragon, can you beat Ducati there? You're able to find those positives. You're able to take those little wins when you can. And that's what the great champions do. And they've got that photographic memory. It doesn't matter if it's someone in football or you know basketball, tennis. You look at Roger Federer or, or Rafa Nadal. They've got the memory of what it took to win X, Y, and Z. And they always are able to focus on what it felt like at that moment and get themselves back into that. And someone like Johnny does that better than anyone else other than Marquez in racing as well. We've all talked about who we've seen as who's got the most pressure on their shoulders in 2021 or who's got the most to prove. We've also got a couple of questions that have come in from some of our Patreon supporters. And you can support the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And we had a few new supporters through the course this week, Ray Bailey and Harley Rogers, both supporting the podcast for as little as $3 a month. And it really does make a big difference. We're able to put in some additional content for all of our Patreon supporters as well. So we've got a couple of questions in and uh, one of them is coming from Neil Roberts and uh, Neil's been a supporter of us on Patreon for almost a year and he's asking us who do you think doesn't deserve to be in a specific team in the Grand Prix paddock 
And is there someone that you think should make room for another rider who deserves a shot on a factory bike? So, Dave, we'll start with you. Um, that's a that's actually quite a difficult question. I mean, it's a um, honestly, right now, it looks like the especially in in the MotoGP um, paddock, it's a fairly balanced. Um, it, it, it's all fairly balanced. It, people are more or less in the right place. I mean, if you go through the if you go through the factories, um, you know Suzuki with Rince and Mir, obviously they deserve their places. Uh, Vinales and Quattararo at Yamaha. I mean, you could say that Vinales doesn't um, uh, uh, should have delivered earlier, um, and he clearly has his faults. Quattararo's got everything to prove. Miller and uh, Miller and Banyaya. I mean, if I had to pick someone, I would probably uh, say Pekka Banyaya. I think um, he he only showed flashes of brilliance last year, and in his first year was not really. Um, the kind of he, he didn't really impress the way that he should have. Uh, I would have liked to have seen more from him before we, uh, you know, before he actually got that promotion to to the factory team. Um, I mean, if you're looking at the the the, the entry list for the 2021 season of MotoGP right now, I think there's really only one obvious name, um, and that is uh, Lorenzo Salvadori, and that is maybe a bit harsh of me to say that, but um, there is good reason to believe that that Aprilia. Uh, should be an improved package this year. It's a factory bike um, in a factory, you know, at a factory level team. Um, and Salvatore, maybe, I don't think has done enough to, to, to merit that. Yes, he's Italian and he, he's historically been a, a good rider for Aprilia in the, what was the European Superstock Championship and then the World Superbike Championship. Um, but I don't think there's been so much in his tests uh, that he's done aboard a MotoGP machine or in the appearances that he had at, towards the end of last year, which suggests that he's a, a MotoGP level rider. So, uh, yeah, sorry, Lorenzo, but I think I would have to go with that. Well, Neil, can I ask you then, if Salvadori doesn't deserve it, does Bradley Smith deserve it? Um, I would say Bradley probably deserves it over Salvadori, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, good MotoGP rider. Um, didn't really have the chance to be uh, just a... A MotoGP rider last year, he had to be a test rider uh, first and then try and get some results on top of that. So, uh, yeah, I think he does deserve that over Lorenzo. Uh, what about for you? You can look at whether it's in MotoGP or you can even look into MXGP if you want. I mean, if we're talking about MotoGP, on one hand, I want to say a rider like Ikulikwana uh, for his second year needs to show something, especially on a bike that I think has shown it's capable of results. But then on the other hand, that's particularly harsh. I mean, he's the youngest rider on the grid. It's only his second season. Um, you know, if you chucked most of these guys coming in out of, you know, less than two years into their MotoGP career, if you cast them aside, then, you know, you're talking about an extremely tight window of pressure to, to get the results on the board. Um, of course, it comes down to, again, to personality you know how they can work how they can progress you know just thinking of a name going back years someone like Chris Walker coming into the premier class not really showing the potential that you know the team expected of him and, and his his stint in in the 500s was short-lived uh, there are numerous examples like that but it, I mean it's a pretty harsh question I have to say uh, you know I think hey, the, that, that's the, why that's why Neil supports us for a year <laughs> so that he can ask these hard questions <laughs> no I'm so sorry but uh, I think um yeah, it's, it's a tough one to answer. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of the dead wood has already been cleared out. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, good to, point. 
to an extent. If you think about, um, uh, if you think about, you know, the, the people who are leaving, you could make an, you could make a case for uh, Alicia Spargaro, maybe. Um, but Espargaro, again, he's, he gives a hundred percent and he gets more out of that bike than is actually in it. So even then, it's really, really hard. Honestly, the level is right now is really, really high. If you compare it with, say, five or 10 years ago, uh, I think there was a lot, a, a lot more riders who you sort of like thought, well, you know, not that much there. Yeah, in previous years, you had guys paying for seats who possibly didn't have the, you know, the pedigree or, or the track record in their in their past uh, to, to to say that they warranted a seat in MotoGP. But um, you know, that, that's kind of gone with with Tito Robat, especially leaving. Um, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, Tito Robat's gone, Carol Abraham's gone, and they're both really fantastic riders, but not. Uh, you know, not good enough. They were completely interchangeable with 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 sort of 10, 15 other riders in Moto2 who could have taken their places and and have done, uh, and people with more upside. I mean, I'm much more excited about Anea Bastianini or Luca Marini than I was about Tito Rabat or Carl Abraham. Yeah, and I think for me in World Superbikes, it's really only Andrea Locatelli, and not because Locatelli doesn't deserve a seat on the World Superbike grid because he dominated in Supersport last year, but I think it's just the seat that he gets. There's a Yamaha junior team, and I think it would have been good to have seen him move into that team, and then someone like Garrett Gerloff, who had a strong second half of the year, move on to the factory seat. We've also got another question in from Tip Deigler, and he's been a supporter of the pod for the last year. And uh, he's asked us a question of which manufacturer not currently in Grand Prix would we like to see participate? So, uh, Adam, I'll start with you. Triumph have to build a MotoGP bike. That would be interesting. Other than that, then it's been said for years. I'm tired of hearing it. Uh, BMW, sort it out. You know, whatever you're doing in Superbike, you know, carry that support program on, filter your little pieces in, you know, you know, adjust the bike or whatever, but build a Grand Prix bike as well and get in MotoGP. Neil? Uh, I would have to say, um, being a fan of the history of sport, MV Augusta. I mean, uh, the name was kind of synonymous with the, the 500cc class. I think they had more 500 titles than maybe anyone else, maybe with the exception of Honda. I'd have to go and check that out. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a factory that, that dominated um, the the series for, for just decades. Um, you know, the others may not have even bothered showing up to, to compete. It was such a, a formality that they were going to win it. Um, yeah, I think uh, seeing a, a beautiful MV Augusta, we've seen how beautiful they make their bikes in, in other uh, walks of life. Um, I think it would be great to see MV back in the, the Premier Class one day. Yeah, because I think for me, it's someone like Jalera as well. I'd love to see them back. Obviously, they won a lot of races in the 500 class in the 50s and 60s. And uh, whenever you think about Jalera, you probably think about, you know, Simon Shelley on the 250. You think about the likes of Paggi Ali then as well on his 125. Obviously, they were badged bikes at that stage. But, uh, you know, I'd love to see that name back. Dave, what about you? I mean, uh, do you know what? I like the answer you gave once about um, uh, whether Kawasaki needed to be MotoGP, that Kawasaki don't need to be MotoGP, but the Kawasaki World Superbike team, they really, really need to be in MotoGP because that would be uh, that would be worth doing it because they're obviously good enough to actually do it. In terms of manufacturers, I mean, you know, manufacturers, the thing is, it's very limited because you need to be able to spend at least 50 million euros a year just developing a bike to actually get there. Um, for me, I, I mean, a bit left field. I would quite like to see, um, uh, Mahindra, uh, in MotoGP. So either an Indian or a Chinese, uh, mo a brand in, Mo uh, in, in MotoGP because they are 
obviously going to be the future of, of motorcycle production. We're seeing more and more Chinese bikes being sold. Uh, right now, they're all um, a small capacity, but it's very reminiscent of the uh, Japanese invasion of the 1960s and, and 1970s. So, you want to uh, see yeah, uh, a Royal Enfield on pole position, don't you, Dave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Consider, considering it is basically a Norton Manx, but uh, for the uh, for the modern <laughs> uh, modern day, yeah, yeah, definitely Royal Enfield on pole. That'd be great. <laughs> and can I just ask, Dave, do you have any updates on, on Kawasaki? Like, when are they coming back into MotoGP? You're usually uh, the man to ask on Twitter on this matter. Yeah, I'm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's everyone's favorite, uh, everyone's favorite question, and the answer is never, ever, 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 ever. I'd. Uh, we've got one other question in from Tip as well. Now, I'm just going to ask you it because in motocross you've obviously got uh, the women's cup as well and the uh, tips asking us whether or not MotoGP needs to have a support equivalent of formula one's w series w series is a uh, formula three series just for women and uh, adam wondering like what's been the impact of you know the likes of chiara fontanese and uh, different women in mxgp um a noticeable trend in wmx has been i'd say the first year's large spectator uh, participant numbers i'd say and the last few years it's dropped off it's become a lot better in terms of the level of the of the, of the riders uh but i think kiara's helped been a bit of a an idol an icon if you like for for a generation of female racers um and motocross of course is a very cost-effective way of, of racing motorcycles um but you know he, she's not the only one Lia sans um anna carrasco uh you know there's 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 female athletes out there and i think a, a women's series would be you know i think it'd be welcome wouldn't it i mean but then anna's shown she she doesn't necessarily need to race uh uh people or or of her own gender yeah i think for me i i obviously seen anna in the 300s over the last few years she's been able to do a great job won a championship but what makes Anna special is the fact that she hasn't done it in an all women series. She's shown that you don't need to have that. And uh, I think that's what for me is the big positive about what we can see in bikes. And uh, that's why I'd be against the likes of one of those women only series, just because we've been able to see that you can have success at the highest level and win a world championship. Um, that brings us to an end for this week's Paddock Pass podcast, guys. So, uh, Adam, big thanks for joining us. And uh, we're not going to let you tell everyone that you're off to the Canaries again. Neil, enjoy uh, your week of solitude in Barcelona. And uh, Dave, good to have you back on the podcast. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening to this week's Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. You can follow them on social media at Fly Racing USA. You can support the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where for as little as $3 a month you can uh, support the podcast and uh, we'll be able to put up some additional content just for our patreon supporters you can follow us on social media at paddock pass pod and uh, you can drop us a tweet where we'll answer any questions that you have for MotoGP world Superbikes, or for supercross and motocross this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.